Sandoz the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Sandoz and the Sidekick on a Thursday coming off an ETSU men's basketball loss to Mercer down in Macon. Jay Sandoz is on the road. You can probably hear him on the phone. I don't know what's going on. The window might be open or Jay or Kevin might be throwing up out of the window. I have no idea what's going on. But we will be joined by Jay Sandoz in just a moment. But today's show, Joe Panucci, head baseball coach, ETSU, fifth season. He opens his year with his Bucks. Tomorrow against Northern Kentucky, really interesting conversation coming up with Coach Panucci as he gets into, obviously, newcomers, returners, outlook for the season. But perhaps his most, I'll say, impactful answer, the most interesting thing he had to say and a sea of interesting things during our conversation was about the state of college baseball and the first answer that he gave us. And uh, you want to stick around for that because I think it's a general consensus around college baseball specifically the division one level amongst head coaches some frustration that he shared very honest in his answer about where college baseball is as opposed to the rest of collegiate athletics Uh, so that'll be segment three segment two gary downs etsu recruiting coordinator and running backs coach he's going to run through the entire recruiting class that etsu inked during signing day a couple of weeks back he knows these recruits that etsu is bringing in really more than anyone talked to him obviously seen tons of tape and was instrumental in bringing those recruits here to ETSU so we're going to go player by player through the class and get to know them more that'll be segment two here in segment one Jay Sandoz from somewhere in between Macon and Charleston as the Bucks last night taking on the Mercer Bears up nine at the half end up losing by nine and of course on Saturday ETSU takes on the Citadel one o'clock Buccaneer Sports Network, 12.30 pregame. So they're en route to Charleston, from what I understand, maybe getting in touch with Tony Skoll before the Citadel's opener on the Diamond. Of course, Coach Skoll spending nearly two decades here at ETSU. So they're still tight. That'll be a fun evening, I'm sure. And then on Saturday, of course, Kevin Brown and Jay Sanders will both be right on the coast there as the Bucs take on Charleston, trying to end some long struggles. And, Jay, speaking of struggles, I asked you last night, and I'm wondering if you've been able to come up with any other halves that come to mind overnight, but I asked you if you had seen a half of basketball like ETSU played in the second 20 minutes last night against Mercer, just 14 points, nine minutes, and I believe it was 24 seconds without a point. Another scoreless stretch that lasted about three minutes, and they surrender a nine-point lead, end up losing by nine, now five and ten in the league. You said North Carolina 2012-13 season, that first half. They scored 12 points in that half. Has anything else popped into your head as you've recollected about the evening that was on Wednesday in ETSU in those final 20 minutes? No, the only other two games that came to mind, but uh, they, they got over that, would have been the game against VCU at home, in which the Bucs lost by 54. Wow. And, and then the game that they opened up uh, at Syracuse lost by 50, and they were down 26 nothing. Uh, pretty much before the first media timeout. And I think Coach Bartow used every timeout before the first media timeout. But um, they got over 14 in both of those. So right now, uh, just without doing a lot of research, the, the only one that came to mind was that Carolina. I was pretty pretty confident when I told you that last night. I know you, you looked it up confirmed. Um, but that was the only one that for sure I, I knew. And then the other two, um, I thought. Now, there, I know there's plenty of other games where ETSU didn't get to 20, but I don't remember them being under 14 except for that North Carolina game. 
a little bit later in this segment, we're going to go over some notable moments of the game, specifically one on-air moment with the man you're traveling with. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we delved into one with the VMI game. I'm going to be interested to hear your thoughts on where this ranks versus that because there was an intentional foul and then non-intentional foul call, uh, certainly one that Kevin Brown thought should have been an intentional foul, and there's some pre- and post-reaction from the on-air call that you and him had last night that is just too priceless to miss. But I think you look at the game last night and specifically one moment that it felt like was going to swing the game one way or another, end of the first half, you've got a three in the air from David Sloan, and the original call on the court seemed to be a three and a foul as time was expiring in the first half that would have given the box had Sloan converted the now mythical four-point play, a 13-point lead. Instead, they go to the monitor, which seemed to be having its issues all night, and they say that the foul happened before the shot. They wipe away the made three, put 1.2 back in the clock. The Bucks have those very few tenths of a second for which to operate and are unable to make the basket. Instead of it being a 12, maybe 13-point lead at the half, it ended up being nine. Now, there's no guarantees, but that to me, and maybe it was in the back of my head in hindsight's 2020, but that to me was a big moment where you could almost look at and say, if that went the other way, maybe the Bucks have the confidence, momentum in the second half, and again, there was a long way to go. But when it didn't, it almost felt like that was just kind of a microcosm of how these last few weeks have gone for ETSU and that it was going to set them down the wrong path and they were going to struggle in the second half as they have for the last month or so. Did you get the same feeling and what were your thoughts on that call? Because that maybe more than the intentional foul, it seemed like was a head scratch. Well, I, I want to backtrack a little bit because what was confusing about the play was that the referee called the foul and then scored the bucket and then made the sign that he's going to review it. And so then they came over, the, the third referee that wasn't at the monitor review came and talked to TV, and we just said, because we were two seats down, took our headset off, I was like, hey, is it the bucket? Or, and they were like, no, we want to see. It went off before the game buzzer, but the shot clock was different, so we need to make sure it beat the shot clock because it definitely beat the halftime horn. And we're like, okay. So then they come back and they go, yes, the foul happened before the shot clock violation. And then they just go to inbound the ball, and we're like, well, what about the bucket? And at that point, they were ready ready for play, and it was, it was never talked about. So the only thing I could speculate, and I, I don't even know if this is a thing, but he was definitely up in the air when the foul occurred. The only thing I could think of that could have possibly wiped the shot off was that if the foul happened before he released the ball, before the shot clock went off, but he didn't release the ball, until after the shot clock went off, which I still don't think is a thing. But I don't want to swear that it, it is or isn't because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty versed in the, in the rule book, but I, but I don't know that. But he was definitely in the air in the act of shooting. So I don't know why the thing was wiped off. The only thing I could speculate was because of the – maybe the ball didn't leave his hand. The foul happened while he was going up. By the time he let go of the ball, it was still in his hand. During the shot clock, I, I don't know. I thought when the foul happened, kind of time stops at that point. But, again, I, I could be wrong. But I thought that was devastating because you went thinking at least a 12-point was slow to the free throw line for a 13-point lead with 1.2 and the chances of Mercer hitting that he was slim. I mean, obviously, we've seen it happen, 
right? UNCG just did it, banked one home on ETSU. But I just felt like that would have been nice momentum and a backbreaker for Mercer that was reeling. And I felt like that gave a little momentum back to Mercer. And ETSU got the first shot to go down. And then all of a sudden, Mercer just put the run, and ETSU couldn't buy a bucket. So I think that was a tremendously backbreaking play going into the locker room and the psyche for both teams. One team got lifted, one team uh, clearly, I think, a little deflated on how did that happen. We, we had a referee blow it good. And then all of a sudden, it's just no real explanation to us. Now, they may explain it to Coach Oliver in postgame. Honestly, we were talking about other stuff, and it didn't dawn on me to ask him about that play. Plus, I hate asking coaches sometimes immediately after the game about plays like that because I don't need to put them in a bad spot, too, if, if they blow up. And Coach Oliver's not really one to do that, but it just didn't really dawn on me, honestly, to just see if he got an explanation on that. Um, and we're going to talk to him, you know, Friday to try to figure out what exactly that was. But I thought that was backbreaking. That's a possible four-point play, at least a three, if not a four-point play. And then with the intentional, you're talking about six points and how those six points could have swung the game certainly would, would because ETSU would have had two free throws and then the ball back. So it could have been two or more points on that unintentional foul, which the Bucks did not score on that possession after the foul. So Mercer ended up with a, a brilliant foul. You know, they were able to stop the fast break. They didn't give up points um, on that, and then they didn't give up points on the ensuing possession. So I'm in agreement. I thought that was just a you know, an odd play to end the half and certainly a play that I think crippled the momentum going in the locker room. I'm sure you're the same way as me. I just kept waiting for something to change offensively in the second half. It seems impossible to go nine minutes and 24 seconds or whatever the final tally was without a point and then still only be down two. Uh, Like what was in my head was that you made it through your tough stretch, right? There's no way you're going to score 14 points and a half. So you made it through your tough stretch. Mercer was unable to take advantage. They were having a really tough time themselves offensively for the first half of the second half. And you tie it back up. Ladarius Brewer, I think, scored the first six of what ended up only being 14 in that second half. But it seemed like ETSU just never woke up. And it seemed hard to parse through all of these second halves over the last month or so and come up with anything but fatigue. One thing I was encouraged by was at least yesterday with Jordan King being so hot in the first half, they did make the adjustment ETSU's offense in which they were able to get him more shots in half two. They were able to find the hot man, at least for the first half, in this case, Jordan King, and give him the opportunity to be able to put the team on his back. He certainly looked as likely of a score as any for ETSU last night in Macon to be able to do so. Now, the results were not what you hoped. He ends up going six for 15 from the field, three of 10 from outside. And you even look there and say, well, what goes first? when a shooter gets tired, their legs, right? And so then they don't get the lift. Then they end up short on a lot of shots. And he went through a stretch where I think he missed five or six in a row, had such a hot start. And against Sanford, that was a frustrating thing. You never were going to know if Jordan King was going to be able to keep up that hot scoring start that he had to that game because he didn't get the shots, whether that's on Jordan for not getting open or being aggressive enough, whether that's on Desmond Oliver for not drawing up plays to find him, whether that's on his teammates for not – finding him when he was open or just force feeding him the ball at least we know last night that it wasn't able to sustain but as it turned out after that nine minutes and 24 seconds and you're tied at what 46 or 48 or whatever it was um 
the offense just never quite found it, and I'm having a hard time chalking it up to anything but fatigue. You obviously were there. You've seen all of these games up close. You break down this stuff as well as anybody with with ETSU. Can you find an alternative explanation? I think they they changed how they guarded Jordan King. They generally they try to keep everything in front of them, but in the second half they face guarded King and did everything they could to deny him the ball whether it was on a dribble handoff or just out on the wing or coming across cutters. Guys were leaving their players. I mean, they sort of slumped off Ty Brewer and uh, Jake Seymour and dared them to shoot the ball from the outside and gave more help to Jordan King. So, in essence, they just basically said, you can be as with anybody else but him. And I think that, you know, credits, I think, Coach Carey on that and their adjustment. And I thought ETSU did a good job of not forcing it to Jordan in a situation where he wasn't open. And honestly, this game more than any, this was a game where more balls that ETSU shot either bounced on the rim several times and didn't go in, or a couple times, like Sloan had a couple shots, it just rolled all the way around the basket once or even twice before it popped out. And I don't know if the second half was just one of those things that it just it – just, just was, but I thought the adjustment on King is what took him out. I thought ETSU got some pretty good looks even in front of the rim. There was the one possession they had four looks at it and Sloan had a ball roll out then Yasser got a rebound, put it off the glass, it hit the rim, hung on the rim fell. Yasser got another rebound, put another shot off the the rim and hopped five times, didn't go in, got knocked out of bounds. Bucks then got the ball and a three-pointer rolled out and I was just at that point, I kind of just shrugged my shoulders and you know, kind of looked at, at Kevin and was like, I don't know, man. I mean, like, like that, that. those are four good looks, three at the rim, a clean three, and every one of them were on target. They just didn't go down. There was only about four shots in the second half. I think there were two that were wide. I think King shot one that was forced to three right in front of, uh, from the right wing in front of ETSU's bench that hit on the other side of the the rim and just hit the backboard only there were two of those shots and there were two layups that were really just probably should have been finished that weren't but all the other shots were pretty good looks and pretty good takes and i'm just it, it i don't know it's, it's in a season that has a lot of inex, inexplainable things going on i mean i think it just kind of as you said kind of if you summed up the season in one half of basketball that was it and certainly the fatigue I mean, uh, I think Kevin was actually said it on air that Bo Yasser at one point just, you know, he played a career-high minutes and at some point just kind of looked at the bench. He didn't hold his fist up, but you could just tell, like, you know, he's giving it everything he's got. He needs out of the game. And they saw it. And they subbed him. But I just think it, it's it, the second half, the later the game goes, the more the legs go out, the more shots aren't going in, the more rebounds are given up. And it was the timely rebounds. ETSU won the battle on the glass, defensive boards, offensive boards, but it was sort of the time, you know, when they did get an offensive rebound, that was a backbreaker. When ETSU was either trying to make a run or stop a run, they couldn't get that extra kind of up. And then David Sloan in the second half, again, when he picked it up defensively, you know, he was able to pick pockets and disturb. But I think a lot of people have asked, and, and it's about, well, why do you do that all the time? Well, I think he's playing so many minutes he can't. I mean, I, I think at some point he's had to figure out, I've got to save some energy and pick my spots 
in the second half are where I need to really ratchet it up because, you know, who else besides him and Jordan King are going to bring the basketball up? I guess you could have Ladarius Brewer doing some. But I just think the numbers game, you know, Coach said, which I thought was interesting, that they're going with six-and-a-half players. I'm not sure what, what math he was, he was doing there, but maybe because, he, you know, the freshmen are going to limit Nunez to minutes. But, you know, you're even shorter because you didn't have – Charlie Weber, it looks like Cordell Charles is going to be out for an extended period of time on top of the other two guys that have left the program. And it's just a different looking team. It reminds me of, uh, for maybe different reasons, the 2012 13, that team that scored 12 against uh, North Carolina. It also reminds me of Eddie Jones' first year where he finished with basically six scholarship guys, um, got a walk on tryout, ended up giving that guy a scholarship, and Gabe Wasicki ended up playing. Uh, significant minutes for the Bucks over the next three or four seasons, but it just reminds me of those years where it just seemed like everything ETSU did uh, was just kind of snake bit with either injuries or off-the-court stuff or just whatever it was. And so this is about the third time I've, I think I've seen this once as a student and then twice as a, as a broadcaster for the program. It's frustrating because this team, and we know it, it's not like it doesn't manifest itself at times. This team is too talented offensively. Like, you come into the year and you look at Sloan, the Brewers, and Jordan King, and specifically with how Jordan King has played, like, I think there's always that wonder when you don't see something up close. Okay, Jordan King scores, what it was, 12 a game at Siena, and you're like, okay, well, this guy really seems like he can shoot the ball, he can score it. How will that translate to, I don't think there's any question, a better conference. The Southern Conference continues to rise in profile across all of college basketball and is pretty solidly, I think, if you look over the last couple of years and just perception-wise, a top 12 league in the country. Well, Siena plays in, what is it, the MAAC or the MEAC? Which one? Uh, Siena plays in the, yeah, the MEAC. can't remember. One of the two. The MAC, or how do you say it? The MAC, yes. The MAC, you're right. And so that's not a league that has the talent, doesn't have the parity at the level that the Southern Conference does. How is that going to translate? And we didn't know. Well, it translated amazing. Jordan King's been fantastic. So if you look at those four in retrospect, you say, wow, this is going to be an explosive offensive team day in and day out. And don't get me wrong, it has been that. The frustrating part is you see it for the first half, and then you have that second half. And when you're not getting the offense, you're defending well. And you just can't put everything together, right? UNCG game, for instance, like, okay, well, we think that game's going to be 60-58, to 58, right? Well, UNCG scores a conference high for them, 80 points, and so you're scoring well, but against a team that likes to keep the game low scoring, they all of a sudden bust out. Defense has been certainly more of the problem, but then when you get the defense as they did last night, the offense can't put together 40 minutes. Just so, so frustrating from that aspect because you know how talented the team is. You know what they're capable of, and we're only seeing it in 20, 25, or 30-minute spans, it seems. Did you think this was more about Mercer and being able to take things away from ETSU in that second half? Because I didn't, either listening to it or watching the game, think that Mercer looked particularly good. Again, they were without Neftali Alvarez. Felipe Hase did his thing, right? We know he's an incredibly talented player. Jalen Johnson had an okay night. You know, pretty average for him for what he's done this year. 16 points on 3 of 7 from outside, 5 of 11 from the floor. Shannon Grant, who I loved when I saw him here in Johnson City, had a really good, what, 10 or so minutes and put up double figures. Really was carrying Mercer early on. And Desmond Oliver said post game he thought that was the difference, that Grant came in when the rest of the offense 
was scuffling. He was able to carry them and keep them close in the first half, which meant they were in striking distance going into the second half. So he was a big difference maker, if only for that first half. I didn't think, though, overall Mercer looked particularly good. Am I incorrect? Were there things that you thought they did well that took this game for the Bucks, or did ETSU just give it away? I think ETSU just didn't have shots. And I think the glaring thing that you can point to is the lack of post-defense for ETSU. And I think if, if Shannon Grant didn't have his first half, I don't even know if Mercer is even remotely in the game because he was the only guy that had things going in the first half for the Mercer Bears. And there's other games where you could look at and go, I don't really know if teams would be in the game if they weren't able to take advantage of ETSU not having a big post presence. And I know, uh, you know, the woulda, shoulda, coulda game, but I thoroughly believe, and we saw it last year with Silas and Decay, he could make plays late in the game. We saw him take a charge at one a game. We saw him get a block shot to win a game. He's probably the best verbal communicator defensively. And just being a six-year guy, I think he could have, now offensively, you know, he, he never was really the threat. And I know he got a little better as offense went last year. But I just think they either thought Silas was going to be, which obviously you have to think he's going to be there the whole year, or some of the young guys would be able to come along. But they, they haven't. And I think the glaring thing, is the post play and ETSU just hemorrhages points inside because they don't have anybody that can really get stops against a good post player. And Mercer again in the second half didn't go inside. It was like the game in Johnson City. They had a dominant advantage inside, was able to take advantage of that, and in the second half never throw it inside. And they did that again in the second half. So the only thing I'm going to come up with is that ETSU, just just the legs or whatever it is, just didn't make shots. And it was more about ETSU not making shots because I felt like as good as they made a defensive adjustment to try to take Jordan King out, that they refused to give the ball inside. And it's not like ETSU changed a whole lot. They played man, they played 2-3 zone. I mean, there wasn't any gimmicks, there wasn't anything else. They had an advantage scoring against man, they had an advantage scoring against zone. And so I, I don't know offensively what they were trying to accomplish and why in the world they don't just keep feeding uh, Glisson and why they don't feed Grant inside. Matter of fact, Glisson took, I think, as many three-point shots as he did two-point shots, more, which I can't figure more out. More three-point shots. 0 of 3 from outside, 1 of 2 from 2. That's terrible. There's no excuse for that. He, the, he had an advantage on the inside in the first game. Why he didn't do that, so... To me, this game was just about the the usual for ETSU. They ran out a little bit of gas. They didn't hit enough shots. But it, I think it's it's very fair to say that ETSU is going to be in the minus column in post play the rest of the season and have been for the last 10 or 12 games. And if they're able to overcome that, then they can win some games. But I think it's going to be difficult the rest of the season because, I mean, the book's out on ATSU. I mean, they can't guard anybody inside. Again, Seymour got two early fouls. He had to play Nunez in there a little bit more. I, I, I just – I'm confused by the second-half offense by Mercer in both the games against ETSU. But I credit Mercer for what they were able to do defensively in the second half to get Jordan King out. And honestly, you look at – Ladarius Brewer got his points. We get Jordan King got his points. ETSU's not good enough for the other three starters. At least two of the other three starters not to have double figures. 
I, that, that, it's going to be very tough. I mean, Sloan was 2 of 10 off the top of my head, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And, and then Ty Brewer was 0 for 3 from the outside, and he had 6, 7 points. Correct. So I, you're not going to win games that way. I mean, unfortunately, and I think Coach was very honest post-game, the margin for error is already slim. And when those two, any two of the starters, rather that night it was Sloan and Ty Brewer, but when Darius Brewer has an off day, or if you see uh, Jordan Keegan, I thought Ladarius Brewer had a little bit of an off day against Sanford. He wasn't able to overcome that. So if one of those four has an off day, it's tough. But if two of the four have an off day, it's going to be very difficult for ETSU to pick up a win any time for the rest of the season. Okay, it's obviously frustrating times for the Bucs. Now, when things are going poorly, frustration can at times boil over. Specifically one moment last night where your broadcast partner, how he has emerged to be this season, the artist of this. Oh, you got to be kidding me! And I'm not sure if that art is necessarily a Van Gogh, a Picasso. It seems more like just throwing cans of paint at the canvas. But that was from the VMI game that I don't think anyone will ever forget. Maybe the most rageful moment in Buccaneer Sports Network history. He was able to paint another picture last night that may rival the rage that he had just a couple of weeks ago. Mercer stole it. Now Ladarius Brewer got it. And Walker a foul midcourt. That's an intentional foul. And our bench is going, that's an intentional. He had a clear pass to the rim. We saw this in the Wofford-Sanford game last week. Unbelievable. He would have had an easy layup. That's an intentional foul. Look at this. If you can, they're, they're going to. <laughs> not going for the ball. He clearly wrapped him up. It's an intentional foul. Happened right in front of us, too. And not like the VMI right in front of us. This is literally I could have reached out. I'm, and not, I'm not making things up this time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I caught a little bit of heat for the bump by Keen. Firstly, my favorite part of that is that Kevin doesn't even give the referees a moment to approach the monitor and look at it. And he has to catch himself and say, okay, you know, they're, they're going to go over there. Like, it was so instantaneous and just so off the top that he couldn't even give them the fair chance to do the right thing. They ended up doing that. You could almost hear the remorse in Kevin's voice. Now, that was pre-visit to the monitor. Things only got more intense post-visit to the monitor. So, the replay monitor is not working. Of course. Of course. You're on the road. It's not working. Of course. someone up when they're going to the brim and not play the ball and not get an intentional foul. That should be two shots for the Bucks. It's unreal. What are you looking at? Kevin Brown. We saw this last week in a SoCon game in Birmingham, and they got the call right. They got the call wrong in Macon, Georgia. It's unbelievable. Okay, I only got like 60 seconds because Gary Downs is here, and we got to move on to football recruiting, but... Your favorite part of that, and has Kevin Brown been admitted to the hospital with high blood pressure, any kind of anxiety-induced panic attacks, uh, anything that may have resulted from yet another classic on-air blowout? Well, I'll just say that was as red-faced as I have seen him, and I, I knew he was on a roll when I tried to make his save, and he powered through right over me. And I can't, I can't stress this enough. The referee that was getting ready to hand in the ball could not have been more than an arm's length away from Kevin Brown as he is screaming at him, (laughs) what are you looking at? And I'm just sitting there trying to sit here, and and he kind of cut his eyes at me, and I'm like, boy, I've 
I've never been tossed courtside, but if Kevin gets tossed, this is this is going to be great. Like this is going to be at least a story that we can talk about for a while. But his blood was apparently boiling so over that uh, he got bit by a pit bull last night, so his night just got worse. So this is it's just been a rough trip for Kevin Brown already. <laughs> Well, here's to hoping for Kevin Brown in particular, but both of you, that the rest of the trip goes well. Uh, Jay, good to talk to you. We'll catch up with you next week when you're back. And uh, thanks for the time, the breakdown. And, boy, some excellent memories that even though he didn't get tossed, I'm sure we will be able to talk about for a long time. Uh, and it's given us great stuff for the next decade, no doubt. We'll let Jay go. Thanks, Jay. All right, see you, Mike. Gary Downs after this and Sanderson the Sidekick, Buccaneer Sports Network. Luxuriously designed. Exquisitely detailed. First in its class. Corner to corner, a true work of art. Capable of going from zero to $300,000 in a few seconds flat. Are we talking about a sports car? Oh, no. We're talking about Jumbo Bucks Premium Edition Instant Games from the Tennessee Lottery. So test drive the new gold standard in instant tickets today. The Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. here on our Thursday edition of Sandos and the Sidekick. Just heard from Jay on ETSU Mercer last night. Tough loss for the Bucks, And now we turn our attention to football, which we always love to talk here on the show, especially when things have gone as well as they have for Gary Downs, ETSU running backs coach and recruiting coordinator and his Buccaneers. And we've got Coach Downs here to talk about the recruiting class. Firstly, Coach, welcome to the show. Appreciate being on the show. Now, before we talk about the recruiting class, I realized this yesterday, and I can't believe that it didn't pop into my mind in our previous conversations, either on air or off air, but I have to tell you this, and I hope you don't feel too bad. You know, you're a great guy, and I don't want to make you feel that way as you come on the show for the first time, but you contributed to my first ever childhood sports trauma, and I'll explain. I, I know that this is an odd, out-of-nowhere thing. From Minnesota... You're a six-year NFL vet, 1998. I was at that time, uh, boy, eight, nine years old, and I was just really starting to understand how sports worked in Minnesota, which, as it turns out, is uh, very horribly for almost everyone involved, fans and the teams. My first realization that there was heartbreak involved as a Minnesota sports fan came against your Atlanta Falcons 1998 NFC title game, Gary Anderson kicker for the Vikings. Perfect. The entire year. It was a seven-point game with like four or five minutes left, and Gary comes on to ice it from, I think, 46 yards, and he misses wide left. Your Falcons go on to score the game, tie and touchdown, then in overtime, kick the game-winning field goal, and that is a play and a game that they still talk about every chance they get in terms of horrible Minnesota sports moments in the last 30 years, 40 years, really of all time, you were on that team, so thank you for scarring me for life. We know, man, this guy has been money, and I remember most of our team was just taking a knee during that kick and just in disbelief at him missing it. So like us in our, in our playoff game, you know, against you know, Kennesaw State and Mercer missing their field goal to tie it up. But obviously they didn't have Gary Anderson. But, yeah, that's a great opportunity 
and I did not know that I had caused you such trauma. But that was a tremendous game. They were the most talented football team in the NFL that year and were unstoppable with Moss and, you know, Randall and all those things. But we had a great run, and we were very happy to go there to beat them in that cold place. About the best chance that Minnesota has had to get to the Super Bowl. They were the favorites that year, and I'll never forget it. And now I'll never forget Gary Downs being a part of it. It does not change the way I look at you, though, Coach. We are very happy to have you on the show. Okay, help us understand your position a bit more. You were telling me a bit the other day about just how much goes into the recruiting coordinator spot. I certainly didn't know when you were explaining it to me how much you have to do on that side of things. I'm not sure fans know. What role do you play from start to finish on getting future bucks to become current bucks? Well, during the recruiting process, let's say we're at the beginning of football season. All right. While we're in football season, we will have game day visits. So that means we'll bring current juniors and seniors to our, to our stadium when we're having a football game. So I'm supposed to coach running backs, and I do. But that means they show up about three hours before the game, and I put on a tour, academic tour, introduce them to the coaches, show them around the facility, introduce them to the weight room, and then get them tickets to the ball game. So that will be their first in-season opportunity to see the Bucks. And basically when they're in the stands, when the game is over, I'm coaching, I will then go get them out the stands, bring them over to hear the fight song, and then invite them into the locker room. So this year, obviously, we had seven wonderful opportunities to bring recruits in to the locker room during the post game. They can hear our head coach talk about their victories. Um, during the season, we also I divide up recruiting areas. So it's my job to decide what areas with the head coach of what areas we're going to recruit and which coaches are going to go recruit those areas. And to sort of keep tabs on if a coach is going to go out Friday night after our meetings and go watch a kid play uh, to keep notes on what he saw. And I also am responsible for keeping up with the board. So our board today, let's say we got O-line candidates, tight ends candidates, wide receivers, DBs. I create a board that each coach from the area, basically, they put those guys on the board. We have a rating system. I come up with a rating system, let's say 1 to 5, and if let's say they're 2.5 or 3.0, they're techs, they're scholarship guys, and I do a, use a color-coded system so we can keep track of guys we, we want to offer and guys that we have offered or guys that we think would be preferred walk-ons or guys that are, let's say, power five that they're sort of untouchable. Get them out of there. All right, and when the season is over, it starts to OV season. And then we go back to the board and say, okay, who do we have? How many linemen we're going to take? How many DBs? How many D-line? And then we start scheduling visits. When it's time to schedule visits, it's every detail from the kids' NCAA student ID, who's coming on the visit, mom, dad, what his nature is, what jersey, what shoe size, <laughs> how is he getting there, is he flying, is he driving, and where he's going to stay, how many hotel rooms. And my job is to map out this whole visit to show them everything about ETSU football, ETSU the campus, and also Johnson City. They'll stay at the Carnegie Hotel typically. They can shout out to them. And then from there, we will show it be a basketball game, but we'll get them introduced to our entire staff, give them a snippet of our office, defense, make sure, and then get them around our players. So it's sort of like a detailed visit from Friday night and it ends Sunday night. After the visit, we, get, of course, get the signing day. And then, of course, we signed several good individuals this year based filling holes or basically adding strength and depth. And then going into this spring, we are now preparing for our 23 class. So now we're creating boards for our 23 class. And then at the end of spring in late May, we will go out and view most of those high school athletes and then go to camps and view them again, get them on our campus for camps. And so my job is to keep them, keep everybody on the same page of what we decided, who we're, who we're going to take, 
what we're looking for, what positions, and what's going on with these prospects. And sometimes it does involve the actual personnel of making decisions, uh, even though it's up to the head coach's discretion how much authority he gives me. How much tape do you end up watching on each of these players that end up at ETSU, specifically these eight that did end up here? You mentioned you go out, you see them a couple of different times, and whether that's you or um, positional coaches or whoever you've divvied up a certain region to. You personally, though, on these eight, how much tape or in-person time did you get to see these individuals? Well, on every prospect that makes it past the area coach, typically they end up one on, on one of my lists, whether they're on a game day list, on an unofficial list, or an official visit list. And before they ever get to, uh, to an official visit, I'll have watched these individuals multiple times. Sometimes I will watch them prior to the staff watching them. So if a guy says, hey, Coach Downs, watch this guy, tell me what you think, I will watch him. And I may say, I don't think he needs to be seen by the staff. But then I say, you know, after you watch him, let's watch him again. And so typically I'm watching the kid three times. Once before anybody sees him as a staff, then with the staff, and then usually another time we're making the final decision to offer. And then possibly on his visit, if he comes on OV, we will watch the tape the day of. And so we usually watch this kid at least four times, highlights some portion of the game. And then during, if we were recruiting a kid now during the spring and we start recruiting him this early, during the football season, we will go see him play. Now, I may not see every kid in the area, but we've watched most kids extensively. And so once they've siphoned down to being ink to paper, right, they're coming in and they're going to be at ETSU, you've seen them, what would you estimate, 5, 10, 15 times in terms of different times you've watched tape? or Is it too high, too low? What do you think? Some kids we've seen in person on campus three to five times. Sometimes we've gone to see that kid two or three times mm -hmm. and then on the tape. So if you add up the going to see them play, right. and that could even be a basketball game or wrestling match, and then them coming on campus and then watching the tape, you're talking about 15 to 20 times having watched a kid prior to him actually signing on the dotted line. Right. So let's talk about these recruits, and this is exactly why we have you here, because I think you're about as familiar with the entire class as anyone on staff would be. And I'm just hoping you can talk with me about what you like about each of them as players, and let's start with the transfers. Uh, these two really seem to fill needs. Andy Boykin, Jr., transfer from Arkansas, defensive lineman, big hulky, 6'4", 315-pounder to fill space in that three-man front. And then Chris Everhart, offensive lineman, local product out of Greenville High School, went to Marshall, seems like the perfect player to help after Tremont Shorts departed. These seem like home runs to me in terms of filling a need and also just the level of player that they are. Well, uh, you start with Everhart. He was a local guy. He was recruited by us and also our office line coach and Coach Qualls when they were at Furman. Smart player, physical, um, great program. He goes up to Marshall, decides he wants to come back. So you're getting a guy who's a little seasoned, a veteran, very smart, a local guy, has a vested interest in being here. And we reached out to him, but I'm saying he reached out to us. He wants to be here in Johnson City. He's seen the things we've done here at East Tennessee State. He knows we had good O-line play. We ran the ball well. He wants to be here. But you're talking about a smart kid who's strong. I've been watching winter conditioning. This is a guy that's in the front of the pack. Mm. You know, these big guys are doing agilities. He's up front, but they're also running two and three hundreds around the field. And this wow. is a guy who's got a tremendous work ethic and a lot of drive, and he's a leader. Leadership is a huge piece of having a good football team. And this guy who's a smart, he's smart, he's a leader, and he's tough, and he's driven. Talk about Andy Boykin. 
this is a difficult one for me because I watch tape on all of the recruits because we do a signing day show and talk for about 40 or 45 minutes about everything that goes on in signing day and try to bring fans closer to it so you know they don't have to watch all the tape, go find all the stuff. Andy was the hardest one to find tape on for me because he didn't play nearly at all at Arkansas. What do you go off of in a case like that? Do you go back to his high school tape? Are you just relying on the word of others? Is it a combination of a bunch of different things? It is a combination of going back and looking at the high school tape. Because in the high school, obviously, it's tremendous size, 6'3", 6'4", 315 pounds, large man. But in high school, he's very quick off the ball and very physical. And obviously, we, we run a 3-4 defense. We need some, a bigger anchor. Right? We've got a very good anchor, but we need more depth there. And this guy adds experience. So you have to use a high school tape. And then you have to reach out to the coaches that were at Arkansas and find out what did not go right there. What was he missing? Did they have a lot of talent there where he couldn't get on the field? Was this guy not working? Did it, was there an issue between him and the coach? So you have to look at all those things to figure out, can this guy – because sometimes you turn in – this is not a rehab situation, but sometimes you're actually rehabilitating a player who fell on hard times academically or got injured. This is not the case. This guy couldn't get on the field there, but because of his size and athleticism, he can help us in what we do. Let's go with the true freshman. The one you'll work closest with is Amir Dendi, a speedster, running back, 6'1", 192. What excites you most about him? Seems like a top-end athlete from a really athletic family as well. Yes, his sister runs track, but Amir can absolutely run. I mean, he's a, he's a football player, but he runs track. He has great track numbers, runs the hurdles. Athletically, you're talking about a ten and a half foot broad jump. I mean, that's combine numbers for an NFL running back. You're talking about a vertical that's up to thirty nine inches, but very elusive. Excellent instincts. You can see him reading blocks and setting up blocks, changing paces, and finishing runs down the field. He's got good hands. He returns kick. So what we, you know, we've had a very good backfield. I've had a very good backfield several years here. Um, Quay Holmes leaves. Quay's a bigger guy, 6'1", 220 pounds. Amir's about six foot one, 190. So we see him getting gaining weight to 205, 210. Don't necessarily see him be two, two, being 220, but having the ability to get in space and finish runs. You know, we had a home run hitter in Jacob. We'd like another home run hitter. And this year we're probably going to get a little more spread, a little more opportunity to get, to get back in space. And Amir brings some nice qualities to our backfield. Is he someone that you see being like a Quay Holmes and Jacob Sailors in terms of on special teams, being able to play that role, return some kicks, return some punts if need be? Because when I think a guy with top-end speed like him, I'm thinking get him in space, get the ball in his hands. I definitely see him as a kick returner. Um, he's athletic enough. He plays in defense, so he could run down on kickoff as well. But he's just a really good athlete, but has featured at the running back position, physical, athletic. Some of those qualities, attributes you can't teach. And he has some good instinct, but he's a hard worker. Works on, on his skills in the offseason. Right now he's running track, but he's also working with, with a running back trainer. So I like guys with great work ethic, and he has that. He's confident, yet humble. Like I said, those qualities, the top in speed, the ability to make people lit, miss, the vision, the change of pace, you know, those are some natural qualities that we try to mimic. And I like that I can fine-tune it, but he has a lot of things to, that I would like to work with him on. But he's starting from a great base of talent. William Riddle is a name familiar to the area, and his last name familiar to the Southern Conference. Robert Riddle, his brother, played at Mercer and was on Chattanooga's roster. This year never ended up playing as he was rehabbing from a really gruesome, horrible injury he suffered down at Mercer, but has been around the Southern Conference a long time now. William, Mr. Football Tennessee finalist. The tape I saw, he made a lot of really difficult throws, and that certainly stood out. 
it's easy to put a highlight tape together when you got a clean pocket and you got guys running wide open, but he fits some balls into some areas under duress that really jumped off the page. Well, talking, looking at his tape, but also talking to mom and dad about his major problems. And Coach Nukes does a great job of interviewing our quarterbacks because he's our coordinator and our quarterback coach. But the quality that stood out was his mental presence. It's a very tough kid that has been doubted at times, but perseveres through this doubt, always proving people wrong, but very smart. He's a quarterback that can work through the progressions, reading one to two to three, and under the rest seems to be able to stay with his progression, and though he can run, not necessarily looking to tuck it and take off. So as he's avoiding the rush, he's still working through his progression and throwing the ball, leading him. Now, the most important thing is that quarterback decision-making and throwing a catchable ball, and he seems to throw a you know, make very good decisions and throw the ball where only his receiver can get it. But very smart, heady quarterback ahead of his time. Older, let's say, um, you know, veteran in the sense of his experience of the game and processing information. Certainly helps that his brother has been around the collegiate game and can maybe lean on him to know what to expect coming into college as well. You can never have enough playmakers, much like I'm sure many would tell you, you can never have enough quarterbacks. But in terms of the playmakers, Tommy Winton third seems like one of those from Knoxville Catholic, All-State all four years, and from what I saw, had some nice FBS offers. What was the process like in getting him to commit against names like West Virginia, Duke, Kentucky? I mean, those may not be name football programs in the current day and age. West Virginia's had some good teams, right? Like Kentucky has had a couple of years. They may not be the Alabamas, the LSUs, the Auburn, but Kentucky, SEC school, right? These are power five schools we're talking about. I would think as ETSU, regardless of coming off being one of the top eight teams in the country at the FCS level, that's an uphill battle. How did you end up locking him in? Well, anytime you get a player being recruited by Power 5 programs, SEC, ACC, Big Ten, those players have shown some qualities, whether they're athleticism or skill, that those programs are attracted to them. When you've got a player like that, those kids are visiting the Tennessees and Kentuckys first. And at some point, you try to get them on your campus and some, some programs don't recruit them because we don't have a chance. Over the years, we realized that we need to keep recruiting these kids because mm. you just don't know where it's going to end up. Coaching staff changes, system changes, injuries, development. Sometimes you say, oh, I could, we could never get that kid. And all of a sudden, that kid is available due to not having scholarships or changing staff. And if you didn't have a relationship prior to, it's sort of late to build one in the late December. Mm. But this, in this situation, Coach Rader recruits that area. He already had a relationship with this young man towards the end of the season, and we were just waiting to see how this would play, play out. We got him on campus, talked with him, showed him what we have done offensively, how we would use him. And, of course, this guy is a guy that runs excellent routes, tremendous work ethic, ball skills, but really the run after the catch. Mm. He's got running back skills playing receiver. So he's about five foot 10, 190, 195 pounds. So he is a strong receiver. So like that Debo Samuel type with San Francisco 49er, a guy you can throw the ball to, throw a bubble, have him break a tackle, take a distance, or run him on a jet sweep or something like that, or 20 personnel, put him in the backfield. That's what Tommy is. Very confident, works a lot in the offseason, wants to be great, agrees a great addition to what we're doing, fits in what Coach Newell's going to do on offense. Three true freshmen added on the defensive side of the ball. You're not going to work as closely with these young men, so we're not going to talk a ton individually about them. But just a bit on each, two defensive backs in Tyree Rainey, whenever ETSU fans hear Tyree in the defensive backfield, they instantly get excited, and for good reason. And Javon Henderson, along with defensive end Jalen George. As someone with such an offensive background like yourself, 
Do you tend to defer on the defensive side of the ball to those coaches more? And if not, tell us a bit about what you saw from those defensive players. Well, being with Coach Sanders and Coach Torbush over the years, um, I had the benefit actually prior to taking this job of doing a scouting internship with the Falcons and sitting there with Dimitrioff and learning sort of the system that Bill Belichick developed when he was with Browns. And so basically you learn to evaluate every position. Mm -hmm. And so you use sort of critical factors regardless of position. You use certain critical measures that you're looking for, athleticism, explosiveness, balance, change of direction, strength, and in size, you know, that, that matters. And so for each position, then you get into position specifics. So even though I don't coach on defense, I have to know what defense we run, what each positional requirements, and then what the head coach wants to be the overall fit of our team. And in this case, Coach Taylor, who coaches defense, our defensive guys have got to be able to run, mm -hmm. and they've got to be, be physical. Now, obviously, the running that you look for in a defensive back is different than the defensive lineman, but it's all relative to position. So if I start with J Jalen George, he would be a bear or a ram. He'd be our five taking to the field or our defensive end, our weak side hybrid sort of stands up. At six two and a half, two hundred forty five pounds, this guy can run. Very long. When I say six two, I say, well, that's not super tall. But his wingspan is more for a guy that's six foot six, six foot seven. He had a hundred and eight tackles at the defensive end position in high school. Unheard of. Very hard to block. He can absolutely he's quick off the ball, but he absolutely can run. He is physical, great core strength. He is a wrestler. Played for state champion Collins Hill. Number five ranked in the nation. This is a guy that started on the both sides of the ball in 7A Georgia. I mean, I mean, you don't go and get a guy that starts on both sides of the ball, offense and defense. He was all-state on different people's rosters on offense. So he's a tremendous player, great work. And he, too, had a bunch of mid-majors going into this year and seemed to be untouchable. But myself and Coach Shakir kept a relationship with him. He visited during the season. I mean, one of our big games, love what he saw, love what we did on defense. Our defensive line gets after it. And we saw him here. And, of course, man, just happy to get a guy like that with that kind of ability. All right. Next one, um, Javon Henderson. Javon Henderson, I know personally. Hmm. I know him because my, young, my younger son, Caleb, goes to school with him. And when I was visiting them last spring, I saw Javon playing running back during the spring game. And, I mean, this guy can roll. I said, man, who's that kid playing running back? And my son said he probably will be a DB in the fall. So during the summertime watching Caleb, I said, this kid is always out front in the sprints. So I knew he could, could run. And then I just followed him during the year and said, you know, what kind of DB is going to be? He's going to play corner. Well, he's got the twitch. He's physical because he had played some linebacker in, in middle school and ninth and tenth grade. So he got a guy who's a physical corner with the speed and twitch to run with receivers. So I watched his development. And DBs, you know, they have to be confident. They have the skill, but they got to have the twitch, first of all. And Coach Billy requires a new physical. So he matches those criteria. So during the season, the guy balls out, has four picks. I think it's two or three of them pick sixes. Mill Creek is ranked number two in the state of Georgia, finished like number four. And so during this recruitment process, we said we were going to identify that we needed to sign one cornerback. And he was on the board. And as he started doing his visits, I reached out to him. We set him up on a midweek, explained to him what we're going to do on defense. And, you know, obviously we've had great, great DBs in Tyree Robinson and Elijah Huzzy and, you know, Jeremy Lewis, Karan, Lynch. So he sees that level of play, the, the emphasis on defense, our style of defensive play, and he wants to be a part of the Buck family. And, we, you know, we got some great players, but they're great people. Um, Coach, Coach Steve Brown was here at the time, and Steve did a great job visiting with him. And we even let him know that we would hire a defensive co backs coach 
and he would be someone that was very talented. And, of course, they hired Chris Grimes. Chris has already coached our secondary with the D.C. at Garner-Webb. So Javon's a, a great fit for our program athletically, but also comes from a great program, great work ethic, and they are winning program. Uh, Tyree Rainey, safety. Um, believe it or not, when I recruited Tyree Robinson four or five years ago, um, his guy that coached him called me about Tyree. He said, I got a guy that's very similar to Tyree Robinson, and I, he, this guy has ball skills, he's athletic, he's physical, and matter of fact, the moniker for him is the most physical safety in Georgia. <laughs> and so that's, I mean, you look on the tape, and he is absolutely striking people. Yeah, I absolutely hurt in my bones watching that tape, and I am nowhere near the guy, so I totally saw what you saw on tape. So as a safety, they got to have ball skills, they have to have the higher instincts to direct traffic and understand the defense, but they also have to be able to hit. they got to be able to tackle in space. And this guy obviously can tackle, he can strike, but he has ball skills. And so talking to other coaches down there, because that's the, that's Donaldson, Georgia is way down there. It's almost, it's like 30 miles from Tallahassee. It's right mm-hmm. over in the state line of Georgia. So I talked to some coaches down there from Colbert County, talked with the coaches down there from recruiting service about this kid. And they said as a sophomore, this kid was head and shoulders above any kid, six or seven, eight, in, that, in the state of Georgia in the talent level. And so they say he's physical. He's got great short area quickness. His understanding of the game was really high. Coming from a smaller program, a little bit under-recruited because he had about nine, eight or nine mid-major offers, but way down south Georgia. Junior year gets hurt, tears the ACL. So the question is, okay, when you tear ACL and miss a year, sometimes you're going to get dropped in recruiting, but how is he recovered? Came back and played this season. Played this season, had a great year, no issue with the knee, running track now, meet him, his mother, good family, great work ethic. Coach spoke well of him. He, he fits the mold of what we want on defense. And that's sort of like, you know, Coach Tesla defense, the defense coordinator. He sort of said what he had to have, and I sort of know that by now. And I know I don't bring in players that don't match our defense because it won't work. You know, so I'm, sometimes you might say, I think he's a good player. But he's not a good match. Mm. This kid is a good match. Coach Taylor wants physical safeties that can cover, and this guy matches that. Leave us with this, if you can, Coach. With COVID and extended eligibility for a lot of kids, just how difficult is the numbers game Mm. in trying to balance getting what you need without breaking any promises you've made to other recruits, overloading the roster, measuring what you can do with scholarships? I mean, to me, amateur layman over here, but – there would be so many additional factors that you never had to think about before that can add additional layers here that makes your job X amount of times difficult. Well, when you add COVID, the kids, the super seniors, and then you add the transfer portal with it. So that means that we have kids that are eligible for another year that normally would get that scholarship back. And then you have the, you know, it's a good player, but now you have the transfer portal. And so you have to, if you have a kid that's a very good sophomore or junior, the opportunity that he may leave if he does really well. So we have to deal with both those factors. Going into this recruiting season, we had 8.8 scholarships available. Wow. And you could sign over. Some coaches sign over. They'll have eight or nine scholarships and anticipate a couple players leaving. Mm-hmm. And so then they might sign 14, 15 kids. Coach Quarles said, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that when I offer a high school kid a scholarship or, or transfer, that I actually have a scholarship for them to transfer early because it's, it's an awful thing to be able to have to call a high school coach and tell them, hey, so-and-so can't come in in June or July. We won't be able to bring him in until January. That's you hear the 
gray shirts and green shirts and blue shirts. We don't do that here. That can hurt the relationship, right? Yes. You don't want to do that. It's hard to go back into a high school when you've offered a kid a scholarship and he's accepted and signed, and then you turn around and say he can't come mm. because you actually don't have the scholarship. So we don't want to be in those positions. So literally we signed the number of scholarship that we actually had available. Mm. We did not sign over. And so if we have kids that leave at the end of the spring or summertime or graduate, then we will then go out and sign. Now, we're keeping a board, a board available of prospective prospects that if we do have a scholarship available, that you know we'll reach out and we stay in relationships with those guys. At the same time, we don't want to offer scholarships that we don't have. That was an absolutely elite 25-minute breakdown of what to expect with this signing class. And, Coach, I think just a really interesting and compelling look behind the scenes because, again, I don't think these are things that fans or those – that are outside of the college football world would really think about. So for that, thank you so much. And regardless of when we talk on air, off air, I always enjoy it. Uh, appreciate your time. Mike, appreciate it being on the show. Gary Downs, ETSU running backs coach and ETSU recruiting coordinator and someone that broke my heart as a child. But he's here now doing great things for the Bucks. So he is, of course, forgiven. More it was a psychic. great moment for me. <laughs> And, and I am happy for that. At least someone benefited from my loss and hurt. That's Gary Downs here on Sandless and Sidekick Buccaneer Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Stay another year, plus you have some incoming guys. 
it's it's a mess. And, and they dropped the number, I guess, for, for whatever reason that they feel like. But at the same time, that makes us have to navigate through that. So it's challenging, you know. And we don't try to – we're not a program that tries to bring in, you know, 50, 60 guys and make a bunch of decisions. But you're always over a little bit and try to make some decisions on some guys and things always work themselves out. But it's a challenge for all of us. Um, I think moving forward, some of the new rules like the roster – you know, it's going down a little bit with the new rules they, they, that they just came out with. The roster goes down, and at the same time, it comes back with if you're a grad transfer, you know, you're allowed to have five extra spots for grad transfers, but the 35 still is there. So it's just a constant moving target. And it, it's a shame that baseball is held to a different standard than everybody else, and that's the frustrating part. That's where I would love for somebody to sit down and explain to me why. You know, why do we have this roster limit? Why do we have a 25% limit on scholarship that nobody else does? Why do we have counters for our scholarships when nobody else does? Why do we only have three paid coaches and one volunteer? Why is the reason? Everybody's saying it, but nobody's giving us the reason. So I think it's frustrating. I understand that it might not be a top revenue sport for the whole realm of college athletics, but at the same time, if it's about student-athlete welfare, stop talking about that unless that's what it is, because right now it's not. Went off on a tangent there, but that's the facts. I, I love honesty and forthrightness and emotion on the show. That's one of my favorite things, and we don't get enough of that, so I appreciate that you did. Let's talk about more challenges with what you're going into this year. And I'm not sure if this would be more of a challenge, less of a challenge. You can talk about it. But you've now gone through a total staff turnover in the last 14 months. Mike Posey gone to Dallas Baptist right before last season. Then Daniel Sweeney, your former volunteer assistant, gets the William & Mary pitching coach job and – then Ross Sater takes a job out of baseball. J.B. Penzino, of course, in his second season. Now with you here as the pitching coach. Chad Marshall in as your hitting coach. And a local familiar name, Nathan Fritz. He's coached at Carson Newman, Science Hill, played at Milligan, was most recently at King. Tell us about those three that are with you now and what you saw in them to bring them in and join you on staff. Yeah, it is. It, you know, with coaching, with, with movement, um, you know, it happens. And I think when you're in this seat, you know, sometimes you always have to understand that things happen and, and you have to kind of navigate through that. So, you know, with Coach Benzito, he's um, got a ton of experience and has, has done a great job wherever he's been. You know, I think if you look at, you know, his past as a head coach and as an assistant, I mean, he's a he's a winner. He's a guy that's super organized. Um, I think he's a development-based guy. He's a continuous learner, uh, you know, from the kind of has a really good feel of some of the new school stuff with metrics and how to apply that to the development of our players. Uh, he's done a fantastic job with that. But at the same time, like he can sit in the bullpen and talk about grips and he can talk about different things. And um, we're a really good communicator with our guys. And it's challenging. It's tough. You come in mid-year last year and, and have to, to go through that. And, you know, this last year, uh, you know, Kate, Coach uh, Ada decided that, you know, he had to make a move outside of baseball, you know, for some family stuff. And um, it was a little bit of a, a challenge for him. But at the same time, it made sense. Uh, and then Coach Marshall uh, is a guy that played for me at Stony Brook. Um, gosh, I've known him since he was 18 years old. I've seen his path and his development as a as a person, as a player, and as a coach. And you know, the path that he's kind of gone through is is pretty cool. You know, I mean, he he started and you know working at a place way up in the middle of Canada, driving a bus, coaching the team, working on some stuff when he was uh, you know in his early 20s, and then uh, came down and was a uh, kind of our baseball ops person at Stony Brook for a year just to kind of get his foot into college baseball. And then was at William & Mary as an assistant um, 
and then has been GW as an assistant, you know, under, he's worked under some really good coaches, some really good hitting guys, uh, and um, once you kind of get to know him, he's a really personable dude, does a good job, and I think it's the same kind of thing, he's just kind of getting to know guys that are getting to know him, but uh, the transition is, the transition has been pretty good, and, and Coach Fritz is, you know, somebody that I had met when I first got here, um, and, you know, he's a, a really sharp guy, you know, a really smart guy. He's he's a baseball guy in general. That's the thing that I like about him. You know, I mean, he has a pitching background, but has a good feel for other things in the game. And, uh, I think that you know his future is really bright as well, uh, and we're super happy and lucky to have him. So it has been different. Um, I think our guys have been really great with it. Uh, that's that's a credit to them, just because you know they're able to adapt and to make adjustments to, to, to things and it is something that we can't control we're just trying to make some adjustments with it but I'm super happy with the staff I think it's as good as it's ever been and um, it's kind of one of those things I tell our guys that you know if you want to play in this game a long time you're going to have a lot of different people that you're going to be answering to or coaching with and, or I'm sorry playing for you know if you play in different levels of the minor leagues or if you play in if you're fortunate to get to the big leagues or if you're an independent ball and bouncing around like you are, you know, if you're going to get involved with, oh, I love this guy or I love that guy, that's good. But at the same time, you got to take bits and pieces from everybody, and that's kind of how it works. And that's um, kind of the way that it's been, to, if you think about it, probably back when you played. You know, you, oh, yeah. you have a little league coach that might you might have something in your brain from him, and then maybe your dad taught you something, you know, that – is in your head, and then you had a high school coach that kind of got you, and your college coach that got you, and like them, dislike them, whatever that you might feel, there's bits and pieces you can take from everybody, and I think that goes for educators, teachers, anybody. Building the roster this year, Coach, came in and talked about how the pitching needed to improve. I'm not sure things could be going better on that side of the ball. This is historically one of the best stretches in program history that the Bucks have had on the mound. Knowing that and knowing what you were losing off the staff and what was back, plus factoring in some offensive struggles last year, what was your main focus in terms of building this roster back after losing 27 last year? Yeah. You know, again, when we, when we first got here, I think that it was a priority for uh, our staff and, and uh, quite frankly, the administration of, hey, what, how are we going to do to get the pitching better? It's something that we want to do. And, and I, and I believed in that, and I think that was why it was probably a good fit. And, and, and we certainly did that, and obviously that takes some time. And I kind of felt like there was going to be a time where it was going to be a little bit unbalanced, where there was going to be, you know, you might be more offensive now and less pitching and then more, you know, better on the mound and a little less offensive. And I, I feel like 2020 was probably the most balanced. Obviously, we don't ever know how that's going to end up. Uh, and then last year, I just feel like, you know, it was a little bit pitching heavy, a little light offensively. And I do feel like there's a good mix this year. I think it's a pretty good balance. Uh, I feel good about the guys on the mound. There's plenty of returners. There's some younger guys that I think will contribute. Uh, and offensively, there's some returners that I think will help us. And I think there's some transfers and some younger guys that will get some opportunities to kind of fit themselves in and make some noise. And I think that's the part that's going to create the balance from an offensive and, and pitching side and defensive, too, I, I feel like. So I'm comfortable kind of with the balance. And like anything, you know, it always takes a little bit of time to kind of see what you're at and shake the tree and see what falls out and see who's competing and see who's ready to go. But from, from what I'm looking at right now, it's definitely a, a relatively balanced thing.
let's take a look at those returners. We mentioned 27 gone off last year's team, 19 back. That may sound like a lot of turnover, but a lot of your big contributors are back on the roster, including your top three on staff from last year, plus seven on the offensive side, including two all-conference preseason players in Ashton King and Bryce Hodge. The five others all playing one role or another last year offensively. Seems like this is a strong core you have back offensively and on the pitching staff. It is. Yeah, it is. I think that it, it, uh, it, it kind of leaves a nice balance of some experience and some guys that have been through some stuff. And like in any sport, you have adversity, and it's how you react to that adversity. Uh, and I shared it with our guys the other day. Like, adversity doesn't always have to result in a negative. You know what I mean? Like, that seems like, oh, we have adversity. How are we going to get through it? Well, we get through it, and that adversity turns into a positive. And I think when you have some guys that have been in the trenches or have gone through some tough moments or tough at-bats or tough, you know, outings, they can help some of those younger guys out or some of those transfers that haven't had that, that uh, experience yet at this level. So it's nice to have a core like that to be able to relate to some things. Because, you know, it's a tough it's a tough game, and you play every – I mean, we play so much. You play, you know, three to four games a week depending on the scenario. And, um, you know, it's cold, it's hot, it's rainy, it's windy, the game times change, you know, lightning strikes, a dog riding's on the field. Like, <laughs> you know, weird things happen, and it's like, all right, you know, I remember when this happened. Let's, you know, stay the course, you know, stay together. And that's big, doing the biggest thing is just trying to keep these guys to stay together and um, – tell them all the time it's just it's what it's what's important right now playing one pitch at a time just trying to get to the next thing because everything else is fuzziness on a screen you know in terms of the newcomers 10 transfers 11 true freshmen i suppose i'll just throw one out in each category that jump off the page to me Uh, logan sutton comes in mr baseball tennessee out of powell high school top 500 player in the country according to perfect game then nathan hickman out of walter state a really tremendous program where bryce hodge came from where second round pick former Buck in what will be forever known as one of the great abbreviated Buck seasons, and Landon Knack, second round pick of the Dodgers. Uh, he was Walter State as well. Hickman, the relief pitcher of the year in the TCCAA last year. And about what I think, who amongst these newcomers do you think can be impact players right away? Yeah, I, I think you, you mentioned a couple that, that are, are uh, going to be super valuable to our program, you know, and that's if it's now or if it's in the future. You know, I think. Logan, uh, you know, has done a good job of coming in, and uh, it's it's always challenging, you know, when you make that jump up to the level, you start to see different things, you have to make some adjustments, and he's currently doing that. He's a he's a great kid, a really good worker, uh, you know, had a fantastic high school career, and, and I anticipate him to, to be somebody that's going to have a bright future in our program. And, um, uh, Hickman's been great, you know, I think he's a, he's a kid that we knew out of high school, and we really felt like yeah, it seemed like Walters was a great fit for him to go in and develop and uh, under Coach Shelton, those guys who do such a fantastic job uh, over at Walter State. And, uh, you know, he's a guy that I feel like we can kind of rely on in some big spots. And, um, you know, he's a, he's a good old country boy that, that does a good job. And he cracks me up, too, by the way, if you have a chance to chat with him. He's, he's a pretty fun kid. Uh, but, the, the, you know, there's some other pieces of this. You know, uh, you know um, there's some other transfers that I do feel like, some Juco guys and some four-year guys. Uh, actually, one four-year guy, Cam Norder, who came from NC Central, who obviously their their uh, season, uh, well, their program was canceled last year, which was unfortunate. And you know, he's a he's he's a nice, experienced kid who's you know um, been around and an old man. I, I don't know what he's like, 28 or something, been around forever. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think guys like that add some value because you know they've been around. And, and, and Cam's a guy that 
you know, as a JUCO guy, was a four-year guy, and then, you know, as a grad transfer, we're, we're super happy to have him. And there's some other JUCO pieces, too, with, uh, you know, Leo Jiminian, Garrett Wallace, and, um, you know, Kennedy, uh, Skylar Kennedy, who's also a Walters guy. And, and there's a few more that I think will, will be some guys on the pitching staff that uh, will, will help us out, you know. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty exciting to see some of those guys uh, and how they've kind of adapted and how they've developed. Um, so looking forward to kind of getting in the trenches and and uh, and getting it going with the Norse. By the way, the North is Norse is that's such a cool mascot. I feel like people don't talk about that enough. Well, you know, me being from Minnesota, the yeah. Vikings, so, you know, I've got a whole connection to yeah. that realm, that era, so yeah. I'm with you. I'm, I'm big on it. It's, it's no bucks, but no, you know, no, no, the no. Norse is a cool one. It is a know. cool mascot. Those people should get a little more credit, but they're, they're good dudes. <laughs> big picture, Coach. Fifth season for you. It seemed like there was some real momentum in the 2019 and 2020 seasons. Then COVID holds the 2020 campaign. You mentioned it. We're never going to know. That, that season is so frustrating to me because it looked like on both sides of the ball, if we're talking pitching, offense like that team could have done something really special and uh, I don't care where I go where you go whatever that's always going to be a year that I wonder about when it's unfortunate because it seemed like there was a lot of good things that had spectacular start for your team you're 12 and 3 everyone across all college sports really seemed to be walking on eggshells last year just trying to get games in so that made it tough and that year it seemed like was a transition year back to some normalcy. And it seems like we do have a little bit of normalcy now, specifically with your sport. What's the energy around college baseball and within your program? Do you feel that it's getting back to those pre-pandemic levels? I do. I, I think it's, you know, we have so much more, uh, I think there's more freedom kind of with the testing and with guys who are vaccinated and non-vaccinated and we've gone through all that mess. And, you know, I, I don't think it's quite as, there's not as much unknown. I think last spring there was just so much unknown. You know, what's going to happen? Are they going to shut us down? Are they not going to shut us down? Somebody has a sniffle. Holy crap, we're going to play. <laughs> you know, I think there were so many things that you just didn't know. I don't know that it's that way now. Not to say that that still can't happen, but uh, that feels normal. You know, I think the roster stuff, like we talked about from the beginning, is, is still a challenge, but um, it, it does. It feels like kind of a normal year. It feels like, you know, that wasn't really too much of a – you know, roster restraint, or I'm sorry, schedule restraint on number of games and things like that. You know, our conference obviously has made some changes kind of with the schedule and things like that, but nothing was as drastic as kind of all the conversations, that, the torturous conversations that we've had, you know, um, for last season. So, no, it does. It feels real. It feels normal. Uh, I'm just excited for our guys to, to get out and compete and and, uh, and get this thing going because it's, it's just the start of a, of a cool spring and uh, – that, that's the best part about that's the best part about baseball. You notice it. You play every day. It's the challenging part, but the best part about it is that you play every day, and you can consistently get better and make adjustments along the way because you know you can still kind of put some different people in, see some different things. There's so many preseason games that really, you know, can kind of get down the avenue of where we want to go with different pieces and see. All right, well, you know, we, we've tried this. You know, everybody's earned their role. People get opportunities. So. It's exciting. We're excited as well. Uh, 3 o'clock is the opener Friday. That's on ESPN Plus. 3 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 1 o'clock as the weekend goes on. Make sure you get out to Thomas Stadium. There's a lot of home games as usual in the February and March months. Especially you get to like mid-March, and I think I counted like 11 games in 18 days or something like that at Thomas Stadium. So make sure that you look at the schedule. Make sure you get your tickets. Uh, we want Thomas Stadium packed this year, and it's going to be a beautiful spring. Chris Panucci in his fifth season leading the Buccaneers into battle once again. Great job, Jamie.
Great to be here. Let's keep the let's keep the aroma expression here, so we can you know continue to have such a, a pleasurable experience right here. I will head to Bed Bath and Beyond just as soon as we're off the air. Thanks, man. Shofanucci, Mirosinus Masai, and that does it for our show today. Back next week, ETSU men's and women's basketball. We will be talking throughout as we wind down the regular.